0: Well, welcome again. Uh, Today we continue uh, our series, Echoes from Exodus, and uh, what a summer journey uh, it has been so far. Uh, In this series, we're exploring how God rescued and redeemed the people of Israel from their oppression and slavery in Egypt, and the incredible and miraculous work of God's redemption that we read about in Exodus, we also find echoed throughout uh, Scripture and indeed all the way down through the corridors of history and into our lives today. Just as the events of the Exodus shape the identity and the stories of the Israelites, the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus shapes the identity and story of the Christian. That's been our thesis for uh, the entire series. So let's just jump right in. I invite you to turn or launch your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7 verse 14. And our teaching time today is actually based on uh, 714 all the way uh, through chapter 10, but we'll just read a a portion of this story. Uh, A bit of context is in order before we read the text. God's chosen people, the Israelites are suffering under the brutal oppression of the Egyptian king, Pharaoh. So God raises up Moses to confront Pharaoh and to demand that he free the Israelites so that they can go uh, out into the wilderness and worship God and eventually make their way to the land that God has promised their forefathers and foremothers. Pharaoh, of course, was not about to let his free labor force go, And so God then tells Moses that he is going to uh, basically, in our terms today, right, Pastor Brian, break bad on, uh, or maybe maybe terms in the 90s, right? So I'm a little bit dated. But break bad on Pharaoh. But Pharaoh still won't let the people go. But Moses is supposed to go and confront Pharaoh anyway. And so as we're about to see, Pharaoh is not only hard-hearted, but he is, as my mom used to say occasionally, hard-headed. So let's take a look at the text. Exodus chapter 7 verse 14, we'll read through uh, 7 verse 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go. So that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river, This is the word of God for the people of God. If you find Taking Notes helpful, we've given a place for you to do so uh, on the back of your handout today. Uh, I also want to encourage you to check out the resources that I provided for you. Uh, they've been helpful for me, and I know that they'll be helpful for you if you ever want to uh, read deeper here. I read just uh, the first of the, of the plagues, and we'll cover the 10th next week all by itself. In case you're curious, plagues two through nine are frogs, gnats, flies, the death of livestock, boils, hail, locust, and darkness. Not a happy time to be in Egypt for sure. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to take a look, a big picture look, of what the plagues teach us about God. But let's talk about the plagues just for a moment before we do that. What can we say about these plagues? Some read the, through the plagues and try to find some sort of natural explanation. You know, the river turned red because it was muddy like some of the muddy rivers down in North Carolina where I'm from, and then that caused the frogs to, to jump out and die, and then that caused the gnats and the, the flies and the locusts and the like. It doesn't explain all of them, but some people try to find a natural explanation uh, for the plagues. Some then go to the other extreme. And they try to find a natural, with every natural disaster, they try to find an explanation of God's judgment upon a city or a country. That all of a sudden a forest fire has happened. Well, God must be judging these people today. So we see sometimes we read about the plagues or we think about plagues and we think of two different extremes. But we should not presuppose our modern biases upon this text, right? We take by faith God's supernatural activity on key points of theology, such as creation, the incarnation of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and of course, the resurrection of our Lord is the centerpiece of our faith. The God who created the laws of physics can certainly interrupt the laws of physics to do his bidding in any way God wants to throughout history. Now, to be sure, when we read about the plagues, there are some absolute head-scratchers in here. For example, Pharaoh's magicians were able to also perform the first two plagues of the Nile, uh, turning the Nile into blood and then the frogs. But then they sort of tapped out. They said, okay, we can't keep up with God, so we're going to stop right here. They realized they were no match for the God of Israel. What are we to make of that? Well, one of the things that we can take from this is that there is counterfeit power in this world, and then there is lasting power. God's authority. And God's power is lasting over creation. God's authority and God's power in the working out of God's sovereign purposes indeed are lasting and eternal. Some of the plagues directly attacked some Egyptian deities. The Nile had a divine sense of of property, if you will, in Egypt. Hecate, the Egyptian goddess of childbirth, is depicted as a frog and so forth. The plagues offer a fascinating in-depth study, and I encourage you to do so on your own. Our purpose will not be to drill down on each of them in the next 20 minutes. What we can glean is that as the plagues hit Pharaoh, the king of Egypt faced a tidal wave of God's unrelenting judgment on the evil that the Egyptians had committed against his people. And as we explored last week, that ultimately... Ultimately, this story, this part of the story of the Exodus is an epic battle between God and evil. It's always critical, I believe, to take a step back and to remember, to remember the big picture here of Israel's purpose and keep that in our view. The Israelites were God's chosen people. They were chosen to be a vessel of God's glory and God's grace to the world. Israel's meant to, to worship God, the one true God, in such a way that all nations would ultimately worship God and experience his goodness, glory, love, and grace. Israel was not chosen because she earned it. She was not chosen because of a special ethnic identity. She was not chosen because of any special talents. And Israel failed in her journey to be a vessel of God's glory and grace. If you look at the sweep of history, I doubt you would find any nation in the history of nations on earth that would be able to step up to this high and holy task of being a beautiful vessel of God's glory and grace. But out of Israel came the perfect Israelite, Jesus, who did not fail at his task of calling all nations, all nations, and all people to the salvation grace of God. Why do we lay out Israel's big purpose? Why do we always keep that in view? Because one of the powerful things we see about God, even as we read the plagues, is God's grace. God leads with grace. God is on a mission to save the world. God, in His sovereign purpose and His sovereign grace, protected His people, provided for His people, and pronounced His judgment upon those who would oppose His salvation grace and purposes. Pharaoh could not stand a chance because grace always leads. God is going to be true to salvation purposes in the world. This is one of the first things we see about God from the plagues. The second thing is this incredible dynamic between God and creation. The plagues should not only be viewed as God flexing God's muscle over Pharaoh. I'd love just for us to see the weight of the connection between God unleashing the forces of creation upon those Who opposed his people there in Egypt? To be sure, God could have used other means to liberate his people. God could have used another army from another nation to do his bidding. He could have raised up a slave rebellion against Egypt. He could have orchestrated or whipped up, if you will, a coup d'etat. But over and over in the Bible, it's interesting, we see this theme of God's creation linked to his judgment and salvation purposes. Elijah on Mount Carmel, we see that God struck the water-soaked bull with lightning to show his power over the God of Baal. The sun stood still for Joshua's army. And then as we'll see later in the Exodus, that uh, the people of Israel were fed by God's hand, manna and quail and water for the journey through the desert. When we see the just interaction of creation and our Lord We see that a star in the sky announced his birth. We see his first miracle being turning water into wine. We see that Jesus had command over the forces of nature. Our New Testament text that Brian read earlier, who is this that the wind and the waves, who is this that the forces of nature obey him? He was the very son of God the God who commanded the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the river and the sun to obey him. But wait, there's more. In the resurrection of Jesus, God brought life from death. You know, usually we see death coming from life, but in the resurrection, we see life coming out of and from death. And in so doing, God ushered in the recreated order. And if we open ourselves to the touch of God, we will be made new. We will be renewed. And we will be restored. So what do we do with this? This idea, this relationship between God and creation, God using creation to do his bidding, we stand in awe. We stand in awe of God and we worship him. And let's don't miss the The tenderness in the middle of these plagues. God saw the misery and the suffering of His people. And God moved heaven and earth to liberate them. He saw the misery and the suffering of His people. And God moved heaven and earth to liberate them. God loves you deeply. God will move heaven and earth to rescue and to redeem you. Let me edit that for a second god did move heaven and earth to rescue and redeem you when jesus died the sky turned dark the earth shook with a quake the rocks split open when he died he moved heaven and earth to redeem you and when jesus was resurrected from the dead the the power of creation that was unleashed in the in the the cosmic sense of that moment God moved heaven and earth to rescue and to redeem you. What do we do with this is we worship an awesome and a mighty God. So we see here God in this relationship with creation. We see here in the the story of the plagues that that grace is always going to lead. God's going to do what God is going to do to make sure that his sovereign purposes prevail And then we need to take a look at this idea of God as our judge. Because we see the judgment of God in the plagues here. The plagues represent his judgment over Pharaoh and the nation. Their evil ways cannot endure and they must be dealt with. And there's this incredible tension in the text between God giving Pharaoh all these chances to avoid the plagues yet hardening the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We're going to have to leave that to the mystery of God but you cannot escape in just the sheer reading of the text the opportunities that Pharaoh had to let the people go. And what is so interesting to me, in the big picture of Israel, to be the witness to the nations so they turn to God, this included the Egyptians. This included the Egyptians. God wants all nations to worship Him, not just a handful, right? I love Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. As some understand slowness, instead He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And yet we see very clearly, even as we continue to read that chapter in Second Peter, that God's judgment is real. And God's judgment is certain for those who reject His goodness and His love. So what, we need, what, do, we need, what do we need to do to make sure we know what we need to know? about the judgment of God. Well, let me just talk about a few things. God's judgment is for God alone, right? We know that. God's judgment is for God alone and that we always need to guard our hearts against standing in that place of of judging others. Judging others can absolutely be addictive. A friend of mine compares it to giving a man a chainsaw. If you give a man a chainsaw there's just a really good chance a man is not going to cut one limb down, right? If you have one limb down, you give a man a chainsaw, he's going to cut and cut. He's going to cut trees that you've been nursing and trying to keep alive for years. He just cannot control it. Judging others can be the same way. It can be addictive, so you have to guard your heart. Our judgment is inherently faulty. We have a tendency to judge others far more harshly than we would judge ourselves on this very same issue. Maybe you judge someone for for gossiping when you might do the same thing and just call it as sharing vital public information. Or maybe you judge someone as being materialistic, but you say, well, I'm just trying to keep the economy going and help it rebound a little bit. We know that God's judgment is perfect, right? You know, I mentioned it, Often, I'm a baseball fan, I wavered a little bit this week, uh, but I'm a baseball fan. And one development over the past few years for television viewers is the, uh, the pitch box. If you, ever, if you watch a baseball game, notice the, the TV, the producers will put a box there, and when the pitcher throws it, you can see if the pitch is actually a, a ball or a strike. We can see it. But often, we can see something that was either a ball or a strike, but the umpire called it the opposite. And so we've always known, but one problem that we see here over and over is that the umpire's judgment is just not always accurate. He doesn't, the umpire can't see the pitch box. Well, we can rest assured that, and we can, in faith, trust that God's judgment is accurate. God's judgment is impartial. God's judgment is not swayed by the balance in your retirement portfolio, the title of your job, the country in which you were born, or any other category that we humans like to put people. As humankind, we have a terrible tendency to evaluate people based on skin-deep criteria, but not God. God looks upon the heart. So if the plagues teach us anything, and they teach us many things, to be sure, they teach us that you and me, we don't want to be on the wrong side of God's Judgment. We don't want to be on the wrong side of the judgment of God. We look at our own lives and we recognize that we fall short. The Bible tells us that we all do. And there's no amount of good that we can do to save ourselves. There's no amount of good we can do to save ourselves. Now, some people may hear this idea that there's no amount of good we can do to save ourselves, and they may start to panic a little bit. Because some people walk through life saying, "You know, I was just counting on doing enough good things, having enough good thoughts, being enough of a good person. I was counting on that to be saved. I have a friend of mine who uh, had several older brothers growing up, and he said that when he was in elementary school, his older brother that was in middle school Uh, taught him a a theology lesson about how you either go to heaven or how you go to hell. And he said it's simply like this. When you do a good deed, you get a brick in heaven. And when you do a bad deed, you get a brick in hell. And when when you die, wherever you have the most bricks, that's where you build your house. And that's where your house is going to be for the rest of all eternity. Now, can you imagine how suffocating that is? To walk through life trying to keep an inventory of bricks? Like, okay, where do I have the most bricks today? No. That's not grace. Remember, God leads with grace. It might be a good way for a middle school brother to keep his baby brother in line, but it's a terrible theology of salvation and judgment. The reality is that any sin, just one sin is an affront to a holy God. And our sin has to be dealt with. And this, my friends, is where Jesus comes in. On the cross, he took the death that we deserve, the sinless one, took the death that we deserved. He took the wrath of God. He took the wrath of God so we would not have to. And when we stand before God, it is not our bad deeds nor our good deeds that God will consider. The question will be, have we accepted the salvation righteousness of Jesus have we accepted Jesus and his forgiveness and his mercy and his love to cover us and to cover and forgive us of all of our sins the plagues the awful terrible holy wrath and judgment of God on those opposed to his sovereign purposes grace love, mercy, and salvation. We don't want our lives to be on the wrong side of this story. We don't want to be on the wrong side of God's judgment. And you don't have to be. I love this promise from Micah seven eighteen and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You'll hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. That is the promise for each one of us today. If you're a Christian today, I invite you to remember with gratitude the moment you first tasted the freedom of God's forgiveness and redeeming love. I invite you to remember that. Maybe one of the ways you remember that is remembering your baptism. I encourage you to walk in the joy of your salvation and with a grateful heart and commit your life to being a vessel of God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy so that others can taste His forgiveness and His rescue and redemption. If you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted Jesus for your salvation, you've never invited Him to be your Savior and your life leader, why not today? Why not today? Just open your heart to the grace and the love and the mercy of God. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare our hearts for the receiving of communion now. I'll lead you in it after... Our prayer, but let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, we stand before you, our holy, mighty, merciful, redeeming, rescuing, gracious God. We thank you, God, that you are faithful and that you are true to Your salvation purposes from the very beginning all the way to now and into all through eternity. God, we thank You for that. And Lord, we read these these passages about Your judgment upon evil. And Lord, we just stand back in awe of You. And Lord, we recognize that indeed, that You have placed Your wrath, that You placed Your wrath on our Lord Jesus on the cross so that we would not have to experience Your judgment and wrath. That we would not, God, have to spend all eternity separated from You. So we just step back, God. And we thank You. We thank you for being true to your grace and purposes. So Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts in a fresh way to receive your spirit in a fresh new way, to receive your love and your mercy and your grace. Lord, for those of us who have been walking with you for a long time, help us to walk in the joy and the confidence of Your love. Lord, help us to take seriously our call to be a vessel of Your love to this world. Help us to do all that You call us to do to share Your Gospel, to serve the least of these, to be the people that You want us to be. Lord, I I pray for those who have not yet come into a salvation relationship with You. Lord, I pray that You would touch hearts, that You would stir hearts, and that hearts would be open to the redeeming love of Jesus. Lord, thank You. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Thank You for the life, the ministry, the death, and the glorious resurrection of our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. So we invite all of you who have placed your faith in Jesus to join us in this time of the celebration of communion. Uh, you'll find uh, on your chair or, or beside the, the chair that you're in uh, a communion kit. You just take a moment there and uh, open that. There's two uh, small containers. Uh, the, for the top one is the container for the wafer, and then the, the bottom one there is the container for the juice. Let me just give you a moment to, to prepare that. Jesus gathered with his disciples. And he told them that he eagerly awaited to eat the Passover meal with them. And when the time came and the meal together, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave thanks. And he shared it with his disciples. And then he told them that whenever you eat this bread, To remember him because this bread, he said, is his body given for you. Let me invite you to eat. Amen. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he poured it and he said, This is my blood. It is shed for the forgiveness of the sins of the many. This is a new covenant. Whenever you drink this cup, remember me. I invite you to drink and remember Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.